Smartcast. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Recorded at WeWork in Midtown Toronto, this is E2 Entrepreneurs Exposed, hosted by Adam LeVinter. E2 is the podcast where great entrepreneurs tell their story. Guys, welcome back to E2, Entrepreneurs Exposed. Thank you so much for listening to the podcast so far. If you've enjoyed the episodes, kindly hit subscribe wherever you consume your audio. In this episode, which is a great one, we chat with co-founder of Buddha Brands Company, Temple Lifestyle Incorporated, Mark Seagoss. The company's hugely popular Thirsty Buddha Coconut Water is flying off retail shelves and has now become a viable market leader in the category of natural organic. In this inspiring story of an exploding Canadian company, Mark and I hit on how his team came up with the brand design, the nature of competing with the big guys like Coke and Pepsi, what it takes to play in the U.S., and the impact of appearing on a popular TV show like Shark Tank and Dragon's Den. Mark was so gracious with his time, he gets into the weeds on how his company manages cash, hires talent, sets up logistically south of the border, and more. So without delay, here we go. Let's get to it. My great conversation with Mark Sigas. All right, Mark. So give me the brief overview of the Buddha Brands Company as it stands today for listeners that don't know what you guys are all about. So as it stands today, Buddha Brands Company is primarily focused on coconut-based products. We started something in trademark something a couple of years ago called the Coconut Initiative. And that, that focuses primarily on using everything we possibly can from the coconut. All this was born from our our venture about six and a half years ago into coconut water, which then brought on the opportunity of doing coconut chips. Now we've done something called coconut jerky, which is actually the meat of the coconut seasoned and dehydrated. And then we've done everything from now coconut vinegar to coconut nectar. And we will continue under the Buddha brand's umbrella to bring out coconut inspired infused product. Of the product mix that you've got, how much in terms of balance of revenue does the coconut water piece represent? It's still our largest. You know, I would say it would have dwindled a bit more just because of the growth of our other categories that we're playing in, primarily snack. But we added about a year and a half ago sparkling coconut water, which has just brought the coconut water segment of our business back up even more. It's a huge, everything's sparkling now with soda sales declining. So we're seeing the whole coconut water category for us, the business continue to rise, which is great, but it's still the boot of our business. All right, so let's go back to the beginning. Nine years ago or something, Temple Lifestyle was, was founded. What were you doing before this? I was in the supplement industry, so primarily sports nutrition, so vitamin, proteins, things like that, dealing with the GNCs, Popeyes of the world. But I mean, even Loblaws, you know, everyone's been buying, you know, uh, everything from protein powders to vitamins and pre-workout powders and things like that as they try to get an edge in their training or workout routines. That's where I started mm-hmm. myself. I was in the sales aspect. I was managing a few regions with two of the largest distributors in the country in that space. And then how did you decide to go from that world into the world of entrepreneurship? Well, 
I was already living the lifestyle for many years as far as eating healthy goes. I had done a couple of the shows, the larger shows, both in Canada and the U.S. In the U.S., it's Expo West, which is done every year in Anaheim yeah. in March. And then I was doing the CHFA, which is Canadian Health Food Association show, which they do a couple times a year here, both Vancouver and Toronto. And I was there for the supplement business. And I just saw how much more food was just overtaking these shows. I mean, these shows primarily started with mostly, mostly vitamins and proteins and supplements and stuff. And then it was just food that was overpowering. So I was like, I envision food and beverage being sold everywhere. You can't sell vitamins and supplements everywhere. So so it's just a larger opportunity to get to health and wellness products. And then did you choose coconut specifically as a category because that was what was trending? Or was there some other reason for choosing that category? No, I think when you start out a company, you don't really come from the industry. You try to latch on to anything you can just to start something. We actually started as an importer and distributor. So I had found a couple of brands along my travel in the U.S. and looking through Men's Health magazine that interested me. I, I reached out to the brands, actually got some dialogue going for as far as Canadian distribution rights. And you know, I had already known my now business partners we played hockey with mutual friends. We have mutual friends. So they were already in the distribution business in the clothing world. And I had mentioned them. they were both kind of athletes that had come out of scholarships in the U.S. for tennis. And, you know, put it down. They were looking to diversify their business. And we got two brands. We got one to start. We got a second one. And that was basically it. We had, and for the next about year and a half, two years, we, would, we brought in like several, about half a dozen brands. And then we saw the opportunity for coconut water. I mean, it was just explosive. There was, there was already lack of supply in category. There's nothing but growth. We were probably one of the last ones to the category. And then, you know, now if I fast forward to this day, we don't do anybody else's brands. We're totally a, a brand creator and manufacturer. All right. So let's talk about that. I mean, the branding is very cool. It's slick. It's modern. It's kind of minimalist. How did you come up with the Buddha brand and the design elements around it? It really came to the spotlight through the yogis. And uh, I was looking for something that kind of resonated with that Zen, what would be Zen. And at the time, I was traveling a bit and I had gone to a couple of really cool restaurants that are, I went to one in Paris, in Prague, called Buddha Bar. And I've been listening to their CDs and it was, it was really like lounge kind of worldly music. And I was like, God, we should call this something Buddha or whatever. And like, it would just, it would kind of go well with that whole Zen and and then my business partner, we were looking over all sorts of beverage brands from Coca-Cola to Tropicana, everything. And we were just amazed how nobody had mentioned anything really thirsty in it. And, and, and literally that's within a few days, we were, we're going to call it Thirsty Buddha. As far as the branding goes, we already had an idea of what colors we wanted to use. We thought that green and white were, were, were positive. We were seeing a lot of brands kind of going to more of a lighter colorway than you know, your dark navies or blacks or whatever as far as color goes and branding and packaging. So we had outsourced online, I think it was 99designs or something like that, one of those basically, mm -hmm. and, and put it out there. And we had, I don't know, God, almost 100 people bidding on it. And then we, we locked into this one girl out of New York City. She helped us a little bit. She gave us a bit of a skeleton, but we, you know, we really, really morphed it ourselves after. We, we, we saw what we wanted to do with it. And, uh, I mean, if I showed you the first draft that we were working on with her compared to what it is today, like night and day. So we, we have basically done it all in house. We've never outsourced any of it other than that first initial, like just help us start somewhere kind of thing. And then, so how did you, so once you have that brand solid and you've got the product figured out, how do you get traction into 
grocery retail? The good thing about Canada is that 70% of the head offices are in Toronto. Right? I'm telling you right now, as our expansion in the U.S., it's the absolute opposite of that. There are offices everywhere across the U.S., head offices. In addition to that, we're a small country. I mean, we're spread out, but we're a small country. So we really were focusing primarily on the web. I mean, eight, you know, nine years ago, health food wasn't what it is today. So we were primarily focused on the West Coast, Vancouver, BC, mm-hmm. you know, a little bit of Calgary. But there's a great chain out there called Plant Organic and you know, Whole Foods. And we just started getting into those guys. We started doing a lot of like the independent guys too. These major buyers, from the big guys, they, they go to all these stores. They go to see what the innovation is what, because these little guys move way quicker. So when you start telling the story around them, uh, you start getting, you know, when you're making those head office calls down the road, they're like, okay, I've seen you around. And, and that's really what it was. I mean, what I mean, like relentless, like it, I think it's what stalls or fails most brands that are selling like we are like wholesale to, uh, to retailers is, is that they just, they stop. They, they, they see the hurdles and the challenges and how long it takes. I mean, some of our sales cycles were three years as far as, you know, first phone call to actually getting our product in the store. So how do you, like you mentioned the relentless part and, and the challenges along the way, how did you guys get over those barriers? I, I wish I could tell you there's like some like secret recipe here. You got to have your pipeline full and you got to realize that you can't get everybody at once. And if, even if you've worked on a guy for a year and a half and you really think that you're going to get them, you're going to land them and you don't, you better be, you better have backup. You know, you better already be working on guys that, that you can finally land or, or get an opportunity with. I mean. You get one. And the greatest thing is if you can just get one. So I'll give, I'll give an example in, in the GTA in Toronto was we got Sobeys, Sobeys, Ontario, which is about 80, 85 stores, but they're prominent. I mean, they're one of the top, you know, five or three major retail chains across the country. So you tell a Metro or a Loblaws or a Walmart that you're in Sobeys, even if you're not in all, cause you don't always get all distribution. You may have been in like 60% of those 85 stores. Okay. And even if you're not flying off the shelves, you have a story to tell. And in Canada, because it's such a small marketplace, it's monkey see, monkey do. So if, if one guy has it, good chances are the other guy's like, he's right around the corner for me. I, I got to consider this brand. In the U.S., it's not the same thing. I mean, it's so spread out and it's so it's such a big marketplace that no one's like running to list your product. Let me ask you about the U.S. just because just you brought it up. So you, being a Canadian company, how do you promote your brand south of the border? I mean, it's one thing to get on a shelf in the U.S., but it's another thing to get the consumer to buy once it's there. What was your expansion into the U.S. like at the beginning and how did it take shape? So we've been working in the U.S. now for almost five years. We're, we had the fortunate opportunity to work with probably one of the top five grocers there, which is HEB. They're 300 stores. They play primarily in the one state of Texas and they do mm-hmm. about 21 billion in sales. I mean, they're, they're a monster and they're mm-hmm. a great retailer to work with. You tell most retailers you're in there and it's just unbelievable the opportunities that open up. You add to that a retailer like Wegmans, who is by square foot the highest grocery retail in the US. Again, oh, you're in there. How are you both in HEB and Wegmans? It really is sometimes just putting yourself, and I, and I encourage brands that try to go to the US to pick some of those kind of like anchors because you can tell that story so much better to the rest of the country. Because if you just start going on, like going everywhere or focusing on the wrong guys that you think may be the key influencers, you're going to be, it's going to be a long play. I mean, it's still a long play. It's never easy for Canadian brands. I don't think Canadian or Canadian brands understand the US market. And I don't think they ever will in their lifetime if they've been long time living Canadians, because it is just totally different, totally different. The consumption 
the logistics of it all. Just logistics alone is something that you, like I have four distribution centers in Canada. In the U.S., you could focus on just the Northwest of the U.S., like let's say Northern California and Pacific Northwest, mm-hmm. and you would probably have double the amount of DCs, distribution centers. Like it's yep. just, it's, it's, mo- it's a monster and I don't think people understand it. So that anchor in Texas that you got, I forget the name, the $21 billion company. H-E-B. H-E-B. So what was the pitch into them initially? You know what? We knew a friend who was already doing business in another totally different category and hard goods with them. They were doing bags, like their reusable bags for H-E-B, a Canadian company. They linked us up with one of their brokers. This broker made an introduction to a buyer, the beverage buyer that he didn't even know. We got along with the buyer. She loved the branding. And I mean, we've been with them now for what? I think it's five, five and a half years. Yeah, about that, five and a half years. And uh, we continue to still be one of their top selling coconut water brands. I mean, I think we usually between two and three position behind their private label brand, which is great. I mean, it's unbelievable, but it's the kind of retailer that, you know what, it's, it's a guy like that if you can hit it off and you do well, because of their, their way of doing business, their execution, you go directly to their warehouse. They control all the setup in store. So every store, what they call a planogram. So you'll walk in and no matter which store of yours they walk in, it's in the same aisle and the same spot, our product all the time. You can get retailers like that. It really makes your life easier. But I mean, that's really was, it was an introduction and somebody liked the brand and it happens a lot. I think people, but you got to put yourself in the game because a lot of times people are like, I can't go to H-E-B. It's just, they're too big. No way. Texas, how am I getting my product? I don't understand. Figure it out because there really are a few retailers that you actually want to focus on to get your business off the ground. So once you got the ball rolling south of the border, what was, I guess, the biggest surprise? Let's, let's just say one good thing and then also one not so good thing or something that you totally didn't expect going into the US? One good thing. I mean, there's a lot of good things. I would say that it's interesting when I think the advantage we have of being a smaller Canadian company that was kind of last of the category in Canada and definitely last of the category in the US is that the other guys in our category competing brands are making so much money and just trying to keep up that they're really not focusing on innovation and having an edge on the competitors. They're really focused primarily on you know what they what they can do to expand in other markets. So go to India, go to Asia, go to Europe. Whereas we're coming in and we're trying to do some things different that when you see a, a coconut water category that's almost become basically saturated because there's been so many brands, you're almost seeing sales flatline. So we come in with different advantages. When we used to a couple of years here, the the people in the US, the buyers in the US say, sorry, got enough coconut water brands. No thanks. Now they're saying, yeah, I need to shake things up. I want to consolidate some of the, the garbage brands and I want to give brands that could reignite my category again. Let me see what you got. And that's how we're getting, that's how we're winning business down there. The negative things, it's all logistics. So I'll give you an example. We actually own the coconut water business in the gas and convenience channel in Canada. We double the sales of the world's largest coconut water brand, which sits at number two. We double the sales in that channel. In the US, we thought we could go in and you know, nip away, chip away, because we knew how well we did in that channel. The problem in the U.S. is this: there's like we were dealing with a retailer called Sunoco, and uh, they own a lot of the top sites for gas convenience on the East Coast in the U.S. We were going to go into like a thousand of their sites. Great, awesome. Problem is, you're going like 23 distribution centers, and not all of those thousand stores are strong. So a lot of the distribution centers were ordering like two, three cases every week. Our distribution center in the U.S. is in Fontana, California. 
So you start trying to get product over to Pennsylvania, which is three cases. You're spending $400 on shipping on three cases that are 20 bucks each. Mm. It's a logistical nightmare in the U.S. if you're not set up right. Unfortunately, we're not set up poorly. We're just not set up at the best of our ability to service service everybody in the country. We will open two more distribution centers in the next probably six months, Midwest and on the East Coast. But I would say the logistic thing in the U.S. is the thing we still can't and still have not mastered. And I think it will still be probably another two years before... We get there. And you know what? Every other brand I talk to, whether they be international or Canadian brand that goes down there, they all experience the same thing. Heck, there's U.S. brands that experience the same thing. So that is probably the, one of the negatives. So if you open those two additional DCs that yeah. you, you mentioned, what will that do to the revenue? Will it double it, triple it? What kind of an impact does it have? Well, here's the thing. So it's a good question, but it's a question that has a lot of different angles to it in the sense that you know, we ask ourselves all the time, like, well, what if we, you know, what if we, we had two distribution centers, for example, when we first started, we had one in Jersey, and then we had our current one in Fontana, California. We closed the one in Jersey. Why? Because we didn't have enough retailers on the East Coast pulling the product. So I don't even think it's so much a distribution center. It's also the right retailer that you have working with you and those distribution centers. So for example, like, even if we had one right now on the East Coast, I probably wouldn't do business right off the bat with Sunoco because you've only got one anchor. Now, if I had two or three major gas chains on the U.S., in the, in the U.S., or in the East Coast, that would probably push me more to, to, to justify doing that business with that re- those retailers in that channel. Whereas if I look like at a Wegmans or an HEB or a Whole Foods, a lot of times I can go either direct to their warehouse or I can deal with a, a distribution, a, a, a distributor so I'll give you an example. UNFI is the largest natural organic distributor in the U.S. and Canada. They don't have like 30 different distribution centers in a given region. They may have one or two. So I know that the 40 or 60 whole food stores in the southwest of the U.S. can pull from one distribution center my product. And that UNFI, that distributor, can order by the pallet and make my business profitable. All right. So I want to go switch gears, go back to something you were talking about earlier, the category itself. So the competition is heavy. You guys are playing in a, a very competitive space. How do you, you mentioned innovation. That's what draws retailers to your brand. How do you guys differentiate yourselves in the category? If I look at my competitors in the category, if I look at consumer packaged goods industry in general, so CPG, Mm-hmm. In our space that we're in, natural organic, everyone's it's it's almost like tech right now. It's let's get a bunch of investors, let's go balls to the wall, and let's bleed money, let's grow the, the top line, probably not even make much money, but let's grow our, our sales, our gross sales, and sell. And I can give you several examples, guys we know that started either a few years before us or a few years after us. Our X bar out of Chicago is a perfect example, sold after four years of operation to Kellogg's for $600 million, little protein bar. The big guys, the multinationals are gobbling up guys like us. The problem is you've got to get past that hump. And the hump being is you got to, if you really want to get a small piece of a big, big pie, you've got to liquidate almost what you've got. You, you, know, you still want to keep the ownership and you want to keep control, but you're giving up a big chunk of your company because what you want to do is you want to get that major investment, bring on the top guys, the top brokers, top distributors. And then don't forget, every time you get listed with a major retailer, you got to pay those listing fees. It could be $10,000 an item, right? Mm-hmm. You know, if you've got six items, 60,000 cash is due right away before your first shipment, or first sales even made. So yeah. you're basically playing this game where all the guys that are sitting in your category that you're playing in, probably 70% of them have big money behind them. And, and you're just trying to scratch and claw to stay alive. 
and to get that market share. So it's interesting right now. This natural organic space is, I'd say it's probably one of the most progressive, innovative industries in the world and definitely getting VC money, investor money, like big multinationals just gobbling a pain 20 times what these companies are even worth. But it's because as they see their their conventional side of the business, like Pop-Tarts and stuff and Coca-Cola starting to decline, decline year over year, how can we make up for that? Well, we're going to we're going to gobble up brands that are nothing but growth. I don't know if that fully answered your question, but if you want to go back to another question you asked about the, how do we have the advantage over the other guys in our space? Yeah. I mean, so I'll ask it a different way. You know, as a shopper, yeah. I go into Whole Foods and I see, I don't know, six, maybe seven brands of coconut water on the shelf, maybe more. One, Vita or Vita Coco, Zico, yeah. you guys, whatever. Like, how does one choose? a coconut water, what should one look for and how do you guys differentiate yourselves? Okay. Yeah. Sorry. And I went out a bit of a rant there, but I wanted to kind of give you the lay of the land and kind of what you're playing up against as far as brands. So Vita Coco's largest in the world. Zico's owned by Coke. O&E is owned by Pepsi. How do we differentiate? Well, those guys all have bags of cash behind them, like major and distribution. Now, as far as like actual product inside the carton or the can, there are different ways that guys are doing it. There's concentrates out there. There's blends. There's guys that are adding coconut flavoring. So obviously their product's diluted. And then there's guys doing what we are, which is just a natural product, you know, untainted. So it really comes down to, I'm going to compare it to how energy drinks were like 15 years ago, or yeah, about 15, 20 years ago, where there's like hundreds of brands on the market. Now you're down to like, what, three? Red Bull, Rockstar, Monster, maybe. That's it. Everyone made some cash. Everyone came to to the well and everyone was getting rich and whatnot. And along the way, as brands started to scale, you know, they would, they would tinker with their products. I'll give you an example of a brand. I won't mention the brand, but they're one of the larger brands. As they scaled, they realized that there's a few ways they can, they can cut costs, they can make more money, but they've, they're going to have to play with the product a bit. So the product is still a natural product. It's just not in its natural state. What they did was they decided to go multi-sourcing. So we get all of our coconut water from either Thailand or the Philippines, which are very close to one another, same taste profiles, same everything, more or less. So you'd never really be able to know which one was from Thailand or the Philippines. And we've got multiple factories in both those countries. If you look at the brand I'm talking about, they started going to Mexico, Brazil, Sri Lanka, Malaysia, Philippines, Thailand, Vietnam. How do all those different regions in the world taste the same as coconut water? They don't. It could be worse. They're not adding in any garbage to it, but it's no longer in its natural state. But that's how they've scaled it onto a global level as far as new countries they're getting in and whatnot. So there are different ways. There's a brand that does an organic coconut water, but it's from concentrate. Well, they're losing market share like crazy because nobody wants to buy a coconut concentrate anymore, regardless if it's organic. So there's all these different things. You know, at the end of the day, most of the guys are doing what we're doing. There's no real difference. It all comes down to branding, preference, you know, what kind of, what kind of innovation are they doing? So like we're one of the first guys to do a sparkling coconut water, uh, which is 95% coconut water, 5% juice for that specific flavor. So we've got like watermelon flavor, a pineapple one, a grapefruit one. So that's it. But you know what? A lot of the times the consumer doesn't know, but it really comes down to taste profile. Mm -hmm. I really do believe. I think that the guys who really stick to, regardless of the products on sale or not, they just prefer that taste. We've been told that people prefer our taste over a lot of the brands out there. But we've also not touched it or tainted it compared to 
what some of the other brands have done. Let me ask you a stupid question. I'm ignorant in this way, but you said there's a brand that can, they're from concentrate, but they're also Mm -hmm. organic. Is everybody organic? And how do you get that label when you're from concentrate versus not from concentrate? You know what? Technically, all coconut water is organic. The thing is, which factories have the certification? Mm-hmm. Like there's, they're not spraying anything. At how all. do you get the How do you get the certification? You just pay for it, or? Well, yeah, you're working. You know, your factories. You can push your factories to either get certified. Uh, it's a long process. It's a costly one, both for the factory, both for us. But it's worth it. Definitely worth it. We're starting to see a very huge demand in the category for organic. In fact, they are, the the category has matured so much is that a lot of consumers are like, why isn't it all organic? What are we buying? Especially because there's been a lot of crap in the category. I mean, there's, there's, there's brands out there that are blends that are for sure adding stuff that are like 99 cents for a big can when we're like at 279. So what is that guy at 99 cents selling? So you're starting to see a big push for consumers asking for brands to be organic. I'll give you an example. When I was down with Costco in, in Southern California, in their LA headquarters, they, for that region, they, they told me straight out, they go, they won't even touch a non-organic coconut water brand anymore. And, and if anyone moves coconut water in the US, it's them. And they're like, that's what we're going. That's the route we're going. And we're pushing our current suppliers to do it. If they don't, then we're going to go to a supplier that does. So in this world, how do you manage cash flow volatility? And what advice, if any, would you give to other entrepreneurs op- operating in a you know a slim margin, high growth area? Oh my God, it's every day. You're. I mean, we're self-funded still. I mean, we have no investors. Every day is a roller coaster. But you know, we've been very fortunate. We've brought on some really, really intelligent people that have decades worth of CPG experience in the last few years, especially the last year, primarily. They've been the rock stars and, and really supporting us and helping us out and you know how to manage it all. It's not easy. It's not an area that I uh, dabble in much myself. I mean, I'm obviously extremely privy to it. My business partner's always been the operations side. I've done the sales side, but he's just a magician in, in what he's done to keep us you know, profitable, to keep us healthy and growing. But it's tough. It is tough. It is tough when you're not playing with big bags of money. And you're playing with your own. And, and, and like you said, it's, it's lower margins, growth, like crazy growth, like the consumption we're going, we're seeing our numbers climb every month. And I think the biggest thing too is, is the amount of dollars you have to spend play in this industry. I don't know how many, many other industries, and I, I don't know every industry in the world, obviously, but there you have to put so much money out before you sell one single unit. Right. So with the, the cash outlay. Is that a banking relationship? I mean, are you financing this with debt? No, we've uh, we've been fortunate. Where uh, you know, the part myself and my partners have done a really, really good job of, of paying ourselves last compared mm. to some of our all stars that we've brought on. In addition to that, too, you know, we've been fortunate being profitable every year. But also, you know, we've had a lot of support from our retailers. I'm not going to make it sound like you know our retailers have taken advantage of us in any facet. They haven't. They've actually supported a small growing. Canadian brand that they actually like, where they either discounted us on listing fees or they, you know, not charged us listing fees. Where, you know, if you're putting in, let's say, five different flavors of an item and each item is $5,000 put in, that's a one time fee, you're looking at 25K. You know, if a retailer says, look, I'm going to forego that, just remember down the road, I need you to support the business when you start doing good business with us, which means doing flyers, supporting them in any kind of, you know, it's in-store initiatives, which all cost money. It's just, I think the thing that's happened here, and, and it, it's probably the thing that's going to hurt us the most in the U.S. in the beginning is that most American retailers won't care. They'll be like, yeah, you want to play here? Hey, 
Like, I don't care about your Canadian brand coming down with a weaker dollar trying to play in our, in our backyard. But the Canadian retailers have, have really supported those Canadian brands. Because if you look at it, if you go into most of the retailers we work with, I would say 90% of the store, like if you go to Whole Foods, 90% of the store is U.S. brands. Mm-hmm. So if you've got these Canadian brands that are just trying to fight and you know put their name out into the market and try to become a success story, you see a lot of the retailers that are actually willing to play with you. Some don't. Some could not care less in Canada, but I would say the great majority do try to help you and support you. So I want to ask you about your experience on uh, Dragon's Den, which is the Canadian, <laughs> for American listeners, the equivalent of Shark Tank in Canada. Kevin O'Leary is on the panel, I think, on both sides. Yeah. That experience in and of itself, like, what was that like? I watched the video. It's a funny video. You run in with your shirt off. It's like, it's, yeah. it's fairly funny. But what was the whole experience like for you? I can tell you the, the thing at the end of the day, and the whole shirt thing was like something like my business partner didn't even tell me it was going to happen up until like 12 hours before we went on air or on air went for filming. It was some of the producers asked. They wanted like, you know, but it, I'll tell you what it is. It's a TV show. Yeah. That's all people should look at it is. Anybody who thinks it's crazier, bigger than that. I think the Shark Tank has actually turned into a viable machine for, you know, getting investors, getting, you know, maybe some support from those entrepreneurs. I look at the Canadian side of it and I'm going to tell you, it's a TV show that was probably the greatest PR advertising thing we could have done for ourselves. We never went there with the intentions of really getting investment. I think that we, we know somebody who works for KPMG that does a lot of their deals and they told us straight out, they said, you know, 5% of the people that say yes to a deal on that show, only 5% of those, a deal actually happens in real life. You got to do your due diligence on both ends. Both, both parties can look at each other's books and see if it's really a real deal. None of that is scrutinized before you really go on the show. So you can tell them what you're doing in sales, but you can tell them you're doing 10 million and you're, you know, you're bleeding the majority of it. Like you don't have to say that part. You just kind of give them the 30,000 foot view of, you know, what your company does and what you're doing and what you're all about. From a PR point, it was great. We filmed for almost an hour. It was just an incredible 5.30 in the morning at CBC Studios on Front Street, downtown Toronto. Incredible conversation with the panel. And yeah, they, they put their little chirps in and their little funny zingers and whatnot. But at the end, it's all edited. It was a totally normal conversation like you and I are pretty much having. And it was great. You know, I think a lot of, I think a lot of people need to understand that a few of them know some of the industries they're probably dealing with, but not all of them. So it's tough for any business person that doesn't really know anything, let's say about food and beverage uh, to sit there and really have that. Like, they, you know, they were telling us things that I'm in my head. I'm like, they don't, they don't even know what the heck they're talking about. And then there were other things that they told us that were absolutely ingenious, but it's a show. But the publicity from it, I'm going to tell you right now, that was the greatest thing. Once that show aired, every single major meeting we went into across the U.S., and we did a road show. We made it on purpose. We did it on purpose. We worked with the retailers at store level. So they would do like big displays of our product as seen on Dragon's Den, like little signs were put up next to the product displays. And then every single head office uh, meeting that we had arranged, and we did it on purpose how we did it. Every single one we went into, you know, emails were sent, uh, a letter package was sent, you know, check us out on the show. You can see it. Every single meeting we went into, the first thing they said to us, saw this segment, love it, it was incredible. Yeah. And almost every one of them result, resulted in business, 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 wins, wins, wins. Honestly, at the end of the day, it's really, really interesting how people perceive that show. It's almost like American Idol. You got to understand, like putting in an ad and then having a segment on you, like having a, like a seven minute feature. And then we did our follow-up feature, which was great too. We got, you know, I mean, the show, like I said, there's not viewership now that it did, but it was still free publicity and it's a minor investment. And like, I encourage people to do things like that. So 
on that publicity note. So when you so you encourage people to to take steps like that. I think a big thing for people is it's fear. You know, you, you have like from what I know of you, Mark, you've got a a pretty unique ability to just like your unique ability is being completely fearless. Like you'll do anything. And the fact, <laughs> you know, no, I mean, you right. have, you have a confidence, you know, to do stuff like this that I think most people don't have. And, you know, it's one thing to go on TV. It's another thing to go on TV and take your shirt off. It's another thing to have a video out there and share it. I mean, you're doing all of that. Like what do you, what advice would you give to somebody that is fearful of taking a step in uncomfortable zone like that? Well, it was interesting. I mean, we, we shot that at 5.30 in the morning on Dragons, and I, I did have a shot of vodka before I ran on shirtless, that's for sure. <laughs> so that's confession number one. Okay. Uh, you know, no, it, like, realistically, I think people, I mean, what do you, you got to lose? I mean, you know, there's an interesting thing I heard back in the day, which is that there's no such thing as bad publicity. I don't believe that. I mean, I mean, I do believe that, you know, there's, there's, there's definitely solid lines you do not want to cross. But I think that, you know, people fear that they, you know, the brand may look well. I mean, it could have backfired. I'm doing like, why is this guy who's a founder of the company running on shirtless or, you know, did they look stupid? And I said, you know what, even if we don't look great, I mean, you know, who cares? It's, it's publicity and we're still young. I mean, I think, think at the time that the company was only what, like three, three and a half, like three years old, three, yeah, three, I think three years old, three and a half, three years old. So it's like, what do you got to lose? Right. You know, I don't think, I didn't think there was any downside to it. Like I, I didn't think there was any negative that would come out of it. I think what that did was, I mean, you know, just going to do that is you never know what the outcome is, but how bad could it really be? And I feel that a lot of times people don't put themselves out there. And when they do put themselves out there, they're putting themselves out there with things that are just kind of a waste of time. It's not really, it's just what, I think it's the, it's the comfortableness of, of, oh, let's just do that. I think it's going to be good, but yeah, okay. But you and everyone else is doing that. There's only so many times you're going to be able to get on TV show an opportunity like this for this kind of viewership. It's great advice. All right. So let's talk about the next phase of the company and the next phase. What, where are you guys at now and where do you want to get to? What's the ultimate goal for you guys? You know, sky's the limit. The one thing we wanted to do best, like product innovation for us is not hard. We've got a vision board that I think that most people would be like, wow, you guys, your goals are like out of the stratosphere, you know, numbers to but I mean, like numbers, you know, numbers and, and innovation and all that stuff and new retailers that you bring on board. I mean, I think that's the easy part, truthfully. I think the hardest part is the people. And, you know, I'm not saying we didn't have our best lineup that we could have had in the last several years, but I think it was the one thing, the one major thing that was holding us back. And in the last 18, 24 months, primarily the last 18 months, we've brought on nothing but like A players. And... A players that came from big brands, big back history that also fit our culture. You talk about major multinational companies that play in the consumer package, good business that have helped us. I mean, they couldn't believe that we built a brand to the extent that we've had with all our distribution and all of our public awareness without having anybody who came on board from, like we had nobody from the consumer package, good industry. We were literally hiring people that came from all walks of life and not one of them came from the industry that we played in. And then you take the founders, like forget about the people that we hired, the founders, myself and my business partners, we didn't come from the, the consumer package goods industry. Not, not like this. I mean, not to a point where you're manufacturing and all this. I mean, it has all been an absolute learning curve and learning curve is fun. It's like, it's like a roller coaster. It's fun until it's not. And it got to the point where it was, it was tough. It was really tough. So it's one thing to find the A players. 
right? You, you bring on these guys, they have the experience. You can tell a lot of that from a resume. But the second part that you mentioned is what I want to ask you about, which is that fit with your core values. And your core values are unique. Like I read them. Life enthusiast gets it done. Hungry for success. The golden rule. Like these are unique core values that you guys have. How do you put these people through this filter and determine whether or not they're a fit? It's tough. I mean, you try to do your best. You try to, you know, when you meet with them, whether it be on Skype for the first time or in person or whatever, you know, you got to go in gut. And we've been pretty fortunate. We brought on a, uh, a COO uh, about eight months ago. We brought on a new VP of finance about six months ago. We brought on our director of sales about 14 months ago. And I have to say that all three of them have been like, when I mean good hearted people, like you see, like we got lucky, we got lucky, and, but you know, we knew them through people and, you know, you can use talent agencies and stuff like that for sure. And we've had some good wins off of those, but I think that all of the people that we're bringing in right now, we're like, we've, you have to understand we've worked hard and we've been, we've been courteous and good in this industry that we play in that a lot of the buyers that we've dealt with have put forth potential reps, uh, sales reps or operations people or marketing people that they think are ready for a change with their current companies. And these buyers like what we're doing and they're referring these people to us. And I've been, you know, through my, you know, EO network and, uh, you know, just from my friends and family throughout the industry that, you know, I've been able to meet other people that like what we're doing. They're, they're getting it. They're starting to see it. Like four years ago, three years ago, people still didn't see it yet. And we still have ways to go until people really see it. But you're seeing people that, see how invested we are emotionally, financially, like we're all in. So we're starting to get lucky on the hires that we're bringing on board. I'm going to tell you, out of 10 people walking in your door, you're lucky if two are good in an interview, like truthfully. And, and mm-hmm. you know, their paper on paper, they may be great, but I mean, good. And like, you know, if you go work for a big company, you can just get lost in the shuffle. You go work for a Coke or a Pepsi. Like, look, I know some pretty smart, awesome people that work for Coke. But I would never hire any of them from our company. I don't think there's that. I think they're good. I don't think there's that good, right? And you understand, we went from like 10 employees to now 22 in a span of like 18 months. So it's heavy. And you got to be really picky because these people are also making pretty hefty salaries. Yeah. Okay. So a couple last questions and then we'll wrap up. The personal side of it. So you are, are you married now? Engaged. So you're engaged. Your fiance is in Toronto, correct? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you're traveling around. I mean, you were in the U.S. for a, a long time. Fourth every, other, every other week. So how do you juggle the demands on your time with the personal stuff? You got to have somebody on the other end that's pretty confident and uh, has you know their own thing going on too. To a certain extent, you got to have a blend. You can't have two people living like two separate lives. But you know, I mean, my fiance is probably the coolest girl I've ever met and super confident. So like. You know, it's not easy. I'll tell you the truth. It's not easy. I mean, it's, it's, it's actually become harder for both of us, but we get it. We also realize that, you know, how, like I don't touch anything in Canada anymore. We've hired a team of like nine people on that Canadian side across the country. I don't touch anything. I barely know what's going on. I mean, I do, but I don't. I mean, there's so much stuff going on and they, and they manage it. They do it all. Uh, you know, now we're embarking, bringing on U.S. people. The U.S., you don't have to bring on as many people to start justifying hiring people down there because all you need is a couple of good anchors. I mean, the volume can be 10 times what your Canadian guys will do, maybe mm-hmm. more. So you can justify then bringing on some of those A sales guys and girls and, and having them manage your business. So 
I don't think the travel would be as crazy. Like I, I purposely now for like six weeks have decided not going anywhere, not anywhere. Like all of last year and this, the first, let's say three months of this year were ridiculous, ridiculous. So I said six weeks, I'm taking it easy because I know that come fall, come September, when our busy season starts again for me, having those, those yearly meetings, those big yearly meetings for review with our retailers, I'll be on planes all the time. So, you know, you, you, you kind of find out when your busiest times are. And, and as, as you get a little bit more of a you know, salty veteran, I'll call it, you know that you don't need to be running everywhere to be on planes and try to get whatever business you can. But we're, we're a lot more focused on who we want to work with in the U.S., so that makes our planning, our travel plans, all our goals a little bit clearer so that we're not running around everywhere. Because when you first go into a market like the U.S., like we were running around everywhere, which was just like endless travel. So, How much sleep do you get? Not bad. I don't know. Six, seven hours. Mm. Pretty good, actually. When, when you seven go out to dinner with your fiance, when you go out to dinner, does she make you turn your phone off? Oh, yeah. I don't, I don't really look at my phone much at, uh, at dinner ever. <laughs> I, I, I really don't. I really don't. I mean, I'm not, uh, I have to say like, I think balance is fairly good. The only time balance is totally off is when I'm traveling. I think when I'm in Toronto, when I'm at home, it's, it's, it's very good. It's when I'm traveling. It's just not normal. You got to think too, like when I do the U S travel, it's not like the luxury of Canada. When we were living in, when I was living in Montreal, you know, coming to do my meetings in Toronto, I would just stay put in Toronto for like, I used to rent a condo for a month at a time out here. Right. In the U S every retailer is all over the place. Walmart's in Bentonville, Arkansas, HEB's in San Antonio, Texas, Whole Foods in Austin, Texas. You've got uh, Kroger, which is the largest grocer in the U.S. They're like Loblaws. They're in Cincinnati. I mean, I can go on. Everyone's everywhere. So when you go out to, let's say, I'm going to do the West Coast. I mean, I'll start up in San Francisco and I'll go all the way down to Texas and I'll hit up everyone I can on plane. So you're gone for 10 days, two weeks straight. What do you think? Last question, and I'll let you go. I lived in Montreal four and a half years recently, actually, 2009 to 2013. You're, you're from Montreal. You're, you've now been in Toronto for, what, four years plus or whatever? What is, the, the cities are close in terms of distance, you know, just 550K away from each other. What do you find are the biggest differences between the two cities? A lot. I, I don't know. There's just so many differences. And it's like, I go back pretty much every month. Uh, I'm usually there for a few days to a week sometimes. I had offices still there. All my parents and family and friends, a lot of them are there. There's a lot of differences. I mean, Toronto has just turned into a total, like it is just, we're, we're business here. Uh, I feel there's more of a, a lifestyle, uh, you know, for, for, for good and for bad in Montreal. I mean, I think they're trying to rebound on the, on the business side of things. I mean, everything's pretty much new in Toronto, whereas Montreal, they're trying to rebuild things that they let decay for decades. There are things about Montreal I can't take seriously. Whereas here, like, you know, if you're running a business and you've got like, it's, it's a different world. It's a different mentality. It really is. Like, I feel like Toronto, like, you know, there's people hustling and grinding here in Montreal. It's, you know, what does everything owe me still mentality? Like, it's different. It really yeah. is. Pros and cons. Uh, the luxury I have is I can go back and forth any day or any time I want. So the interesting thing is, and I'll, and I'll leave you with this, is that if I could do one thing for our expansion in the U.S., it would be for me to be positioned at least for a part of the year in the U.S. I think there's two things that I realized that I've realized over the last year or so is that U.S. most U.S. retailers do not care so much about a Canadian company coming down to pitch them. And logistically getting around, even though Toronto is a lot easier to get down around in the U.S. than it is going from Montreal to the U.S., still a nightmare uh, with travel and the way it is and delays and 
weather conditions, I would say any Canadian company that's serious about the U.S. needs to be positioned three to six months a year in the U.S. Even if it's sharing an office or getting set up, set up for a while or whatever it is. Uh, I've known a couple of guys in the tech space that have done it, even in our industry have done it, and things have changed for the better. I would say our business, in addition to being on Dragon's Den, because the time we had gone on Dragon's Den, I had pretty much moved to Toronto. The minute I moved here, within several months of it, you could see relationships were being strengthened. We had a presence in the Toronto market. Things really did change for the better. And I would say the same thing about that. Anybody looking to expand their business in the U.S., they should seriously consider at some point setting up shop for X amount of time throughout the year. Okay, man. Well, this has been great. I mean, uh, this has been a great conversation. I've done, I don't know, Doug's uh, listening in the background. We've probably done 15 plus episodes now. This has been one of my most favorite conversations to date. Thank you so much for taking the hour and and all the best with uh, Thirsty Buddha and everything you're doing under the Temple Lifestyle brand. Thanks for doing this. Appreciate it a lot. Thanks, Dad. Have a good weekend. Thank you for listening and being a part of E2. E2 is sponsored by Scriberbase, experts in subscription e-commerce. Visit Scriberbase.com for more details. Indochino, made to measure suits and shirts at a great price. More at Indochino.com. And WeWork. WeWork is a global network of workspaces where people and companies grow together. WeWork, where businesses thrive. More at WeWork.com. Your positive support means a lot to us. So if you enjoyed the podcast, please leave a positive review on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you consume your audio. Until next time, make today count with whatever it is you're working on. Today is working for me. Do you believe that for yourself? Hey, I'm Pastor Julie, and I want to empower you through encouragement, inviting you to my podcast, Big Truth Encouragement, where I unpack living a faith-filled life. I created my podcast for the ladies, but gentlemen, you'll gain something too. So I invite you to listen to Big Truth Encouragement on Electricast and any platform where you listen to your podcast. Electricast. Miles, are you ready to record our promo for Season 2 of the Wanna Bet Podcast? David, have you ever seen a grown man naked? Miles, we're not here to quote lines from Airplane. We're here to tell people that Season 2 starts August 18th. But I like Airplane. I know you do, but Wanna Bet is a sports betting podcast. Each week we bet $1,000 on the NFL teams and games that we love. Well, that sounds like fun. It is fun. And last year you picked over 60% of your games correctly. How'd you do? We're not talking about that. We are telling people that they can find us every Friday. No more movie quotes. Roger, Roger. Electric acid. Electric acid.